Dear Fathers, we come before you today. Uh, we really pray that you will help us through the Holy Spirit to understand your word, to, full, to feel the full impact of what it is saying to us so that we may be able to understand this life better, our place in it, our relationship to you and where we are going. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now we are coming to uh, the part of uh, the, books of, uh, in the book of Revelation where it's uh, actually getting harder and harder perhaps to understand for some of us. And I think that uh, not everything I say uh, may be uh, exactly what you feel is right. But uh, basically what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to give you what I feel is the best option of understanding uh, the, the, the book of Revelation. Now there are some parts in Revelation where of, often it's difficult to understand. But I think that as we consistently apply it to the rest of the Bible in the context of the book of Revelation, we will understand what God is saying to us and we'll have confidence in what it's saying. Now, the question I want to put to you today is, uh, how do you know your faith will survive to the very end? How do you know that your soul will be saved at the end? How do you know whether you'll continue to be a Christian in uh, 5 years, 10 years, 20 years, a lifetime's time? Uh, if you were forced to uh, give up your job or your property or your relationships or your family, do you know whether you could persevere under that sort of pressure? And I think that these are relevant questions which uh, the reader will be asking themselves, not just in the first century, but ourselves today. Because last week, we were given a very, very negative and pessimistic picture of life in this world, especially as a Christian. Uh, last week, we were given the first opening of the four seals, the four seals which Jesus opens, and it brings forward the judgments on this world, and we recognize that in the world there was war, there was violence, there was famine, there was death, and these things are all among us today. But even worse for us as Christians, is that as Christians, it says that we will face persecution. And we will face persecution from the world. And I think that for us as, as uh, Christians in Singapore today, we will probably not take that uh, with uh, a great deal uh, of seriousness, maybe with a pinch of salt, because the worst that we can probably expect as Christians today is maybe a, a bit of uh, a ridicule or people mocking us or ignoring us or looking down on us. But I think that in the first century, uh, as they read those words uh, last week, when uh, in chapter 6, where God said to uh, the martyrs under the altar in heaven, how long, O Lord, before you judge uh, the world for the blood of our, our, uh, you know, our sacrifices? And he said, wait a bit longer. I'm sure they would have felt very bad. Because in those days, uh, they lived, uh, if you look up here on this slide, right, they lived under uh, the reign of uh, quite terrible uh, Roman emperors. Okay, so on the left here was Nero, uh, this is Caligula, next slide, and this was uh, Domitian. Okay, and, they, and uh, the people who would have received the book of Revelation would have lived under the time of these emperors. And we know from history that these emperors were very cruel and vicious um, people who were very cruel and vicious not only to just general people, but even kill their own family members. Okay, so that gives you an idea of uh, what sort of people they were. And they were especially cruel to Christians. And we know from church history, as we know from uh, chapter 2 and 3, that that often meant that Christians would be martyred. They would die. They would have economic uh, persecution against them. They would lose their property. And they would be forced to go into prison. And I think that the question... Uh, that the Christian will be asking as they read chapter 6, especially in the first century, is how do we keep going? Right? How do we keep going when God says that we're going to keep facing emperors like Domitian and, and many others after them who would put us in jail, uh, take away our property, 
kill our family members, break up our church services. How, how will we go on? And I think that's where the context of chapter 7 comes in. Right? Because chapter 7 it sort of answers that question about where, where is the hope? Right? How do we keep going on? Because the six seals are here, judgment is coming, but not yet. So how do we keep going on? So here in chapter 7 it begins with saying this, and you need your Bibles because especially as we come to the, uh, these later chapters in the book of Revelation, I'm going to keep referring very closely to the text because uh, the text is going to inform us very uh, relevantly of what it's saying and you need to keep referring to make sure that I get it right. So it's in chapter 7 verse 1. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Now here, John has another vision. Okay, he's just had the vision of the six seals, and now he's got another vision. And here we are given a, a, a glimpse of uh, uh, four angels who are said to be holding back the wind and this wind is supposed to harm humanity. Now, if we read, read chapter 6 and now we're reading chapter 7, we sort of uh, feel that uh, there's something quite similar happening here compared to what happened in chapter 6. Because in chapter 6 we were seen to have four horsemen and here we have four angels. Okay? And, um, and actually, when you look at uh, this picture... Uh, it actually looks back on the Old Testament, like many commentators say, it looks back on the Old, Re- Old Testament references for the, he- for the horsemen as well. So if you look up here, I'm going to be referring a lot to the Old Testament, so you'll need your bulletin and you can write notes or whatever, or you can kind of borrow the PowerPoints from me. But in Zechariah chapter 6, right, it talks about um, similar four horsemen, and they also go to the four corners of the earth, just like these four angels. Okay? And in the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 6, uh, Zechariah says this, I looked up again, and there before me were four chariots coming out from the, between two mountains, mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black, the third white, and the fourth dappled. All of them powerful. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these, my lord? And the angel answered me, these are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the lord of our whole world, uh, of the whole world. The one of the black horse is going towards the north country, the one of the white horses towards the west, the one of the dapper horses towards the south. So many people say that actually these four angels are, are almost parallel to the four horsemen because you notice here, the four horsemen go to the four corners of the earth and here, the four angels are going to the four corners of the earth as well. So like, hey, hold on a second, right? Seems very similar. So I think I agree with uh, many people who say that these four angels are probably the four horsemen, or most probably the four horsemen, because if it's the same Old Testament context which is, which is looking back to, then these four horsemen and the four angels, they are, they are in the four corners. And actually, when you think about it, uh, the image changes a bit, and that's why Revelation is quite confusing to us, because in verse 1, the angels are holding back the wind. But then in verse 2, it actually says that these four angels were given power to harm the earth. So are they holding back the wind? Or are they given power to harm the earth, right? Because in the four horsemen, they were given power to harm the earth as well. So here, uh, we have a picture drawn by our church member again. Very helpful picture. And uh, this is from last week, right? And you can see that she drew 
the four horsemen and they're going off to different places. Okay, and I think that what it's actually showing us is that uh, these four angels are almost like parallel to the four horsemen uh, of the, the, the four seals, but they're holding back the winds. Uh, now these winds are not like your kite flying winds, you know, you go to Marina Bay and you fly your kite, right? Because in the, in the Middle East, these winds are, are called uh, Sarocco winds, which are really massive winds, you know, they destroy, they cover the city with, with, with sand and destroy things. They're very powerful winds, like a big typhoon. And what's happening is, if we understand these four angels to be the same as the four horsemen, then what we see here is God is saying, before anything even begins, before judgment even begins, God is saying, look, don't do anything yet. I have to seal these people. I have to put a seal on these people. Now, uh, some of you may be asking, well, you know, why is it in the beginning of chapter 7, the next slide, uh, it begins with the words, after this, right? After this, he saw these four angels. Now, one of the things that um, uh, uh, we, we deal with when we read the book of Revelation, and this is the way that I think is the right way of understanding it, when he keeps saying after this, uh, it doesn't mean that there's a chronological uh, thing, okay? because I think Revelation doesn't work in a literal chronological thing. When he says after this, when John says after this, he's saying, I saw this vision, and after this I saw another vision, and after this I saw another vision, after this I saw another vision. It doesn't necessarily mean that each of these visions will be parallel to the way history works, right? Okay, so I think that it's helpful to think this way. If not, if we see everything literally, then it's not actually corresponding to the way uh, the literature of the book of Revelation is actually uh, being uh, unfolding to us. So here, uh, these four angels are holding back the winds and God wants to put a seal on these people, on the foreheads of the servants of our God. So what does that mean when God says He wants to put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God? Now, if you look at your neighbor, you'll notice that none of you, as far as I can see, have anything written on your forehead. Okay? Uh, because if we were to read Revelation literally, then we would have on our forehead here, right? Property of Jesus Christ. Okay? But it doesn't say that. Because in the language of Revelation, it's, it's symbolic, right? So, the seal is not this, okay? This is not the seal of God, okay? You do not have the seal of God on your forehead. Next slide. It also is not the seal that uh, Jesus is cutting when he opens a scroll. Okay, and, and last of all, it's not a tattoo. Okay, the seal literally is a symbolic way of saying that God has put his mark of ownership on you. That God is sort of saying that these are his people. And in fact, other parts of the Bible, as you'll see here in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians 1, next slide, uh, Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 4, tell us that actually God has put a seal of ownership on us through the Holy Spirit. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us to set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. And it says the same thing, a similar thing in Ephesians 1, a similar thing in Ephesians chapter 4. And what it's saying is that it's a very powerful way of saying that God owns us. And because He owns us, He will protect us. See, this whole vision is about protection. Uh, when I went to boarding school in Australia, uh, most of my Australian classmates who were in boarding school with me 
were from the country. And I remember one of my friends, I think Matthew Moon was his name. He owned a big uh, uh, sheep farm. And apparently, what they would do is they would brand all their sheep or their cows with a brand to, to, to say that this is theirs. Right? So, if my name is Andrew Ong, I'll put an O uh, on, on, on my sheep to, to, to show that it's mine. Lah. Okay? Now, if your name was a Tan, you put a T. Okay? So, it's to show that this belongs to you and you'll protect it. But as we look at this passage, what is God protecting His people from? Why does He need to put a seal on them? What is the purpose of this mark? And this is where verse 4 onward comes in, right? The very confusing passage in verse 4. Then I heard the number of those sealed were 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Nathalai, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. Now, what is the purpose of this vision? Why is there this 144,000? And why are there 12 tribes of 12? each. Now, there are basically two main options for us to understand what this 144,000 of, of uh, this Israel means. Some people say that it's ethnic Jews. You know, that means real Jewish, Jewish, lah, Jewish people. Okay? Uh, either Jewish Christians or just Jewish people, uh, generally. Some other people say that it's, the, it's, it's God's people, the church. You know, spiritual Israel. So is it ethnic Israel, as in the nationality, the blood type, or is it spiritual Israel? Spiritual Israel, that means those who belong to God. Okay, you understand the two pictures, ethnic, spiritual. Now, I uh, don't think that it is ethnic uh, Israel. And there are several reasons why not. Okay, you may disagree with me, but uh, this is the reasons why I feel that it is not ethnic Israel. See, the first thing is, let's remember the audience and the context of the book of Revelation. So, Revelation was written to, first and foremost, these seven churches in Asia Minor. And Asia Minor was in a place where is modern-day Turkey, okay, modern day, which is actually very far away from uh, Israel. Okay, it's like um, Myanmar, what Myanmar is to us in Singapore. Okay, it's far away. So, the book of Revelation is meant to be a source of encouragement and comfort to Christians. So, it will be very, very interesting if this vision here is only talking about ethnic Jews. Because imagine you're sitting here in church and we are reading the book of Revelation, right, which we got all the way from uh, John. And you're, you're Gentile, and uh, on the other side of the aisle is a Jewish person. Then you're like a Gentile person, you're sort of thinking, well, this is really unfair, right, because God only seals all the Jewish people, but all the Gentile Christians, they're all left unsealed. They're not part of God's people. So, contextually, and the, in terms of the audience, it doesn't make sense that it's ethnic Jews. And also, in chapter 2 and 3, we saw that the Jews, uh, next slide, the Jews themselves were attacking the church. Right? Revelation chapter 2 uh, says that, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews, and are not, but are synagogue of Satan. In Revelation chapter 3, 
I'll make those who are synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I'll make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. So if you notice here, right, it actually says that the Jews, they're ethnically Jews, but they are not really Jews in the spiritual sense. But those who are loved by Jesus are actually those who, who actually follow the word of God and, and recognize Jesus. Okay, so first of all, in terms of the audience, it doesn't seem like ethnic Jews. In terms of the context of two, chapter 2 and 3, it doesn't seem like ethnic Jews. And also by this time, uh, when the book of Revelation is written, right, uh, next slide, the whole concept of the 12 tribes of Israel was sort of like uh, not, not working anymore because... Um, by this time in uh, church history, uh, next slide, uh, this is the Assyrian Empire and they, they sort of destroyed the northern kingdom by 700 BC. So that means 10 tribes out of the 12 tribes were gone. And the next slide, and then the Babylonian Empire came around in 600 BC. And again, uh, that sort of disrupted the whole tribal system. And we know that by 70 AD, when the Romans came and completely wiped out all the tribes, there was no longer any tribes of Israel as, as in terms of the way we understand it. So, these tribes of Israel are not the ethnic tribes, but they are the spiritual Israel. And who are the spiritual Israel? The spiritual Israel are the church, the people of God. We are the spiritual Israel. That's what it says in the New Testament. So here, um, sorry about all the slides, but uh, we've got to keep going back to the rest of the Bible to understand this. In Romans chapter 2, it says, A man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. And in 1 Peter 2, 2 chapter 9, it says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. So the church, the Christians, we are actually a holy nation. We are the spiritual Israel. So Revelation uh, chapter 4, what he sees, the 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel, are actually a, a, a symbolic picture of the church. Now the question is, why then does he say that he, he hears about 144,000 of, of Israel? Now why 144,000? Now, if you ever speak to um, someone from uh, the Jehovah's Witness, they will say they believe in a literal 144,000 people going to heaven. And that's why they want to evangelize you, because they want you to be one of the 144,000 in heaven. But they have uh, experienced a problem, because now the Jehovah's Witness are much bigger than 144,000. So how, which of the church of the Jehovah's Witness ends up in heaven? I don't know how they work that out, right? But you see, 144,000 is not a statistic. It is a symbolic number. It is a figurative number. You see, when you look at the, the tribal numbers, right? 12,000 from Judah, 12,000 from Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe from Gad. It doesn't seem like a, 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 a census or a statistical number. See, in uh, Numbers chapter 1, uh, which is up here on the slide, I won't read the whole thing, lah. They did a census for the nation of Israel, uh, you know, during the, those times when they entered the promised land. And you notice there, it says the tribe of Reuben had 46,500. Uh, next slide. The tribe of Simeon had 59,300. 
the tribe of Gad had 45,650. Uh, the tribe of Judah had 74,600. So $12,000, 12,000 people cannot really be the people going to heaven because even when they went into the promised land, there were more than 12,000 people already. Right? And, and, and again, when you look at the numbers, uh, census figures, these figures seem a lot more like figures you'll get when you count a real population of sample of people, isn't it? Whereas, I mean, come on, how can you have 12,000, 12,000, 12,000? It just doesn't make sense, right? So, what does it mean, this 12,000, 12,000, 12,000? Okay? Well, uh, if you, there's another slide where, if you want, for your information. Also, this table that we see here is different from the table of the real tribes of Israel. Okay, you may not realize it, but uh, in the real tribe of uh, Israel, Reuben always comes first because Reuben is the firstborn. But then in our table, Judah comes first, and probably because Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. And here, Dan is missing from our table, whereas Manasseh, who is part of the line of Joseph, gets counted twice. Right, so, uh, if it's a literal table of the tribe of Israel, it's kind of a bit messed up, right? So, why do you get 144,000? And why do you get 12,000, 12,000, 12,000? Now, for those of you who are mathematical people, 144... Uh, actually comes from 12 times 12, right? Is that right? It must be right. Okay. Trust me, I'll, I was an accountant before. Okay? So 12 times 12. Um, and 12, symbolically in the Bible, means something. Okay, 12 is a number which is always associated with the 12 patriarchs or the 12 tribes of Israel. And how many apostles were there? They were... 12 apostles, right? I won't ask you to name them. Right? Now, Jesus <coughs> didn't choose 12 apostles because he went to a small group seminar and he thought 12 is a good number, right, for my, my team. No, he did it because 12 in the, in the Bible means a complete number. Right? There's no one missing. Okay? That it is a, it's, it's a full complement of people. So, if you have 12 and 12, I think I agree, many people say, look, 12 is like the, tw- the 12 tribes of the Old Testament and the 12 apostles. And you put them together, you get 144. And then also a very big number, which is 1,000, which is a big number in those days. You multiply by 1,000, you get 144,000. So what it's saying here, when you look at this number, symbolically it means that there is no one missing. 144,000 means that you have the full number of people from the Old Testament or the Old Covenant the full number of people from the New Covenant. And they're all there. And you look at them by tribe, every one of them is there. There is no tribe which has only 11,999 people who are sealed. Everyone who needs to be sealed is sealed. And I think that's a very important concept for us because it says that God will not miss anybody when He seals them. He will always get everybody that He is supposed to be part of His people. Now, uh, last week I was playing in a golf tournament and, I, and there was a, well, actually someone very, very, uh, very asked me to go to this President's Challenge thing, right? So, uh, President Nathan was there and then um, one of the winners who was called up for this thing, you know, they call your name and uh, run up is someone. Hello? Is he here? Oh, he went home. Oh, very embarrassing, right? So, you see, that doesn't happen in, in, when God seals the people, see? 
He doesn't miss anybody. Everybody is accounted for. And that's what this picture is saying here. When God says that there is 144,000 seal, when He says that there is 12,000 seal from every tribe, it means every one of His people is marked by Him and every one of them is protected. It is a picture of complete protection that we see here. But what are they being protected from? Well, that's where the next vision comes in, right? Because in verse 9 to verse 17, there is a subsequent vision. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, and they were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out, Salvation, sorry, in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, again, after this, okay, now the after this is not a chronological thing, but this is what he sees afterwards. Now, what is happening here? Who, who are these people in the next vision? Now, I'm inclined to think, uh, and I have my, I'll tell you why, that this vision is actually the same people that he saw in the 144,000. Okay, and, and the reason is because in the first vision, in verse 4, he hears that there's 144,000. Right, you look at the words in verse 4. Then I heard the number of all those who were sealed, 144,000. But then, after this, I looked. And what does he see? He sees a great multitude of people from every tribe, nation, language, and, 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 and culture, and everything else. And there's a very similar situation from Revelation chapter 4. See, Revelation chapter 4, which is up here, he hears about the lamb, right? He says, One of the elders said to me, The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is triumph. He is able to open the scroll and the seventh seal. And then, after hearing this, he looks up and what does he see? He sees the lamb. So he has a very similar situation. He hears about the 144,000 from the tribe of Israel. When he looks, what does he see? He sees a whole multitude in heaven. And I think uh, you can discuss this to see whether you think I've got it right or not. One perspective, the first vision, is actually the vision from earth. Right? It's the vision of what's, ha- what's happening here on earth. These are all the people sealed here on earth. And this is happening before uh, even judgment begins. But the next vision is in heaven. He looks up in heaven before the throne and the four living creatures and the elders. And what does he see? He sees all these people there. So one vision is in earth, the next vision is in heaven. One vision is the before picture, the next picture is the after picture. It's almost like he's got a fast forward button, right? On his remote control. And the first picture is all about God protecting his people. But the next vision is all about how God fulfills his protection and saves them. Can you see that? The first picture is all about protection. The second picture is all about salvation. Everybody who was sealed is saved. And this great multitude is actually a fulfillment of the great promises of God right at the very beginning of history. Because God has said to Abraham, even way, way before Jesus was born or the church and everything, what did God say to Abraham? Well, God says, right, that there will be your heirs, right, look up in heaven, it says your, your, 
that, that your, your offspring will be more numerous than the, sky, than the stars in the sky. And in Genesis chapter 2, he says, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as the sand on the seashore. Right, so, when, when John looks into heaven after judgment, what does he see? He sees all these people, too many to count, too many than the stars in the sky, more than the sand and the seashore. So God has fulfilled His promise to Abraham all those years ago. Again, God also promised Abraham, next slide, that uh, through his offspring, which is Jesus, many people of the earth, all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Right? And it says there in Genesis, again, uh, Genesis chapter 17, uh, no longer will you be called Abram, your name will be Abraham, for I made you a father of many nations. I made you very fruitful, and I'll make nations of you, and nation, kings will come to you. Now, the point here is not so much about how great this multitude is, but it's like, you know, like the Olympics. You know, at the Olympics, what do you see? You see everybody standing up, you know, they're all marching in, and every nation, every color, every language, and there's all, you know, great testament, you know, it's very joyful and everything. But here, what are they doing? They're all standing before God. Right? They're all standing before God. And this is a very, very important thing. You know, when you read this thing, you think, okay, so what? They're just standing before God, right? But at the end of chapter 6, what was the question that was asked at the end of chapter 6? Uh, next slide. So, last week, the last question that was asked they said, look, the great day of judgment has come, right? The wrath of the Lamb is here. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So last week, the big question was, who can stand before God when God comes? And this week, we see all these people standing before God. Right? It's like, it's such a great contrast. One group of people are saying, who's going to stand, right? And they're saying, look, have the mountains fall on us. You know, kill us rather than stand before God. And here there are these other people and they're standing before God. And what are they doing? They're not filled with terror or horror or fear, but they're waving palm branches. Okay? Now, waving palm branches in the Bible is always celebrating. Okay? It's not uh, making, you know, kutupa or something, right? But you're waving palm branches because you're celebrating something. So in John chapter 12, I won't read it, you can take a reference yourself which is here. When Jesus comes, they wave palm branches. So the picture here is one of contrast. On the last day of God, a judgment day, we have one group of people last week who are saying, who can stand? And they're asking the mountain to fall on them. And this week, we have another group of people standing before God and they're waving palm branches celebrating God and they're saying, look, salvation belongs to God. But then in verse 11 and verse 12, there's another contrast because here we see all the angels who are standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell down their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Again, there's another contrast. Because last week, they were all falling down before God out of fear. Now they're falling down in adoration. 
I remember uh, this pastor called Dick Lucas. Some of you might know him, a very famous guy. He said, everyone will fall down on the last day before God. Whether you are people in church here, we will all fall down before God. Whether we are people outside who are shopping now, whether they are sleeping in bed, or whether they are playing golf, or whether they are riding bicycle on the East Coast, everybody falls down before God on the last day. It's whether you fall down in terror, or whether you fall down in adoration before God. So, who is going to stand on the last day, and who is going to stand in celebration, who's going to fall down in adoration, who's going to fall down in terror? Well, that's decided in this life, isn't it? Because in the last section, it says there in verse 13, that one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they, and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are those who have come out of the great tribulation, they've washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread out His tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down upon them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, uh, John here has asked a question by one of the elders and uh, usually, you know, when you ask a question which uh, people don't understand, especially if you ask your Bible study leader a hard question, right? They always ask a question, what do you think? Right? And that's what exactly, that's what exactly he does to uh, this uh, elder here, right? The elder says, why, why are these wearing white robes? Uh, you, know, like, you know what the answer is, right? And he says that these people have come through two things. They have two, two, two attributes. One is they've come through the Great Tribulation and they wear these white robes. Now, some people think that the Great Tribulation is a short period of very intense persecution before the coming of Jesus, the very end of history, right? Uh, but Tribulation itself is not a technical word, right? It just means suffering, great suffering, a time of great suffering. Uh, I, I think that uh, I would prefer to see the Great Tribulation not as an intense period of suffering, but an extended period of suffering. Because here, uh, in uh, John, Revelation John chapter 1, right, uh, at the top there, uh, he says as well that uh, he is a companion in this suffering. Right? And I think it makes sense because all Christians uh, will wear these white robes, not just who, those who suffer right at the very end. Uh, and we see that in Revelation chapter 3 because it says that even then, those people who received uh, the letter in, uh, in that church, they, if they overcome, they will wear these white robes. So these white robes are very, very important. Because whether you live now or whether you live in a very intense period of persecution at the end or whatever, you need these white robes. And these white robes cannot be bought at Giordano. Right? These white robes come literally because they are washed by the blood of the Lamb. Now this is not a literal picture because if you bathe in blood, you don't get white, you get red. Right? But what it's actually saying is, the blood of Jesus symbolically cleanses you of all your sins. The blood of Jesus pays for all your sins so that before God, you are pure, clean and righteous. And that's why these people, it says in verse 15, therefore, therefore because they are clean, they have these white robes, 
they can go before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And it says there that they have all these things. Like, you know, they're not hungry, they're not thirsty, they don't have any hot sun. But we sort of say, well, I'm not very hungry. I've got enough food. I've got enough drink in my fridge. I've got aircon. But this is not a picture of um, material comfort. This is a picture of heavenly comfort because it comes about because the lamb is their shepherd. And the water they're drinking is not uh, new water, but it's living water, right? It says there will be springs of living water. They'll get eternal life. There'll be no tears, no suffering. Because you have these white robes, you can have the peace and security and tranquility and comfort of Jesus being your shepherd and looking after you, having God put his tent over you. So the question here that we really must ask ourselves is, are we washed? For those of you who are not sure whether you really believe in Christianity or you're doubtful or whatever, this is a real challenge, right? Because on the last day, only those who are washed by the blood of the Lamb, only those who have the white robes, will be able to go to heaven and stand before God and bow before His presence in adoration and celebration. And only these people will have the tranquility, peace and comfort of, of being in heaven. See, you notice here, it doesn't say when uh, the elder asked John, who are these people with white robes? He says, oh, they are here because they have done their best in life to be a good person. And there's no one here that says, oh, they are here because they have lived a good life, because they haven't hurt anyone, because they have been a good husband or wife or, or father or mother or been generous and given to the poor. No, it says they are here because they have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. That is the only, only sole qualification you need to get to heaven. So it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done in the past, or whether you're proud of the things you've done. You, everybody needs the blood of Jesus. Everybody needs the white robes. Because on the last day, if you don't have those white robes, then instead of standing, you'll be asking, how can I stand before God? And you'll be bowing down in terror before God. And that's a terrible place to be, my friends. But for those of us who are Christians, then the challenge for us is, are we continuing to hold on to Jesus? Right? Because this passage keeps driving us to seeing that the most important thing is eternal life in heaven. And the only way you're going to get it is through Jesus. You see, we can't do it ourselves, right? The only way that we are sealed, if the picture in the first vision, the protection picture and the salvation picture are the same, the only people who are sealed now are those who have the white robes. For those who have chosen to be washed by the blood of the Lamb. And if you do not have the Lamb, if you do not continue to hold on to Jesus, then at the last day when God comes, you will not have this protection. You will not be there. You see, as we look back again to the churches, in Ephesus, uh, they were accused of losing their first love. Now, we're not sure what this first love is, but if, they, if you lose your love for Jesus, that's for sure, then on that last day, you will not be saved. You will not be praising God, but you'll be running in terror. In Laodicea, uh, they were accused of going lukewarm. They were losing their zeal for Jesus. 
Pagamamataratira, uh, they were drifting into heresy, they were drifting away from Jesus into loving other things. So salvation is found only in Jesus and the seal of God is only found in Jesus. So if you're a Christian, we've got to keep holding on to Jesus even if the world is trying to pry Jesus away from us. Now, when I first became a Christian, uh, many years ago now, I remember I had many sleepless nights whether deciding to become a Christian. And one of the uh, reasons why I had sleepless nights was that as I was more convinced that the Bible was true, then I realized that judgment was true. If you realize that judgment is true, then there's a great sense of fear, isn't it? Because if you do not reconcile yourself to God through the blood of Jesus, through having these white robes, then when judgment comes, then you're, you're, you're lost. So there is a sense of fear if you know that judgment comes. It's like having an exam tomorrow, not being ready. Right? That sort of fear. But after I became a, G, a, a Christian, right, then there was a sense of joy, isn't it? Because for myself personally, I felt like, okay, because I've become a Christian now, I've accepted Jesus, I have fixed this problem of judgment, I've fixed this problem of God's wrath. I can look forward to judgment day coming without feeling that fear anymore. But the problem was that many, many years later, you tend to lose that joy of salvation and the fear of judgment because you know it all gets a bit jaded. You look at other things, you become more preoccupied with other things. And I remember that uh, someone was telling me when you do your quiet time, uh, it's always good to give thanks for five things. Right? So sometimes you know, I write down in my journal the five things that I give thanks for uh, when I'm doing my quiet time. And then I realized that sometimes when I write my five things, salvation is not one of them. You know, I give thanks for my family. Maybe I give thanks for the weather. Maybe I give thanks that no one fell away from church or whatever. Right? But then after a while, you, you realize that what happened to salvation? You know, why is it I didn't give thanks for salvation anymore because I was taking it for granted and it wasn't important to me. But I think this passage, when you really, really, really reflect on it, when you think that you are part of that 144,000 symbolic people and that God has sealed you to save you through Judgment Day and on that last day you will be with God, that surely salvation is one of the main things, if not the main thing, that we should be really thankful for as Christians. Right? Keep the main thing the main thing, right? And it's about salvation. And this salvation comes because we keep holding on to Jesus. And I think that this is what the message of Revelation is all about. In the midst of persecution, in the midst of difficulty and suffering and disappointment of God, how do we keep going and how do we know that we're going to keep going on? Because we keep looking to Jesus. Because salvation doesn't come from ourselves, it comes from God and the Lamb. As long as we have Jesus, we have confidence. And we know that on that last day, when judgment comes, we will stand, not in terror, but we will have palm branches in our hands and we will be celebrating the, the coming of Jesus to save us. Because we know that at that time, Jesus will be our shepherd and he will lead us to living water and there will be no tears. There will be comfort and security and tranquility and peace in our life. So let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see that salvation is the most important thing that we need to hold on to Jesus because through His blood He has washed us clean, that we have the white robes. 
that make us pure and righteous and at peace before you, that we can come into your presence, that we do not fear your judgment, that we do not recoil in terror before you. Help us to always hold on to Jesus, to love Jesus, to not be lukewarm, to not lose our zeal for Jesus, uh, to not drift into heresy and, and, and to drift away from Jesus in our understanding and our belief of Him. In the midst of difficulty or hard time or persecution, help us to see that giving up Jesus is just too, too much a price to pay for what the future holds. That judgment will come and that without Jesus we are truly lost. So we pray for everyone here today, every single person, that they may truly be part of the 144,000, dear Father. That on the last day, every one of us will be accounted for and will be saved. And we pray that that will only happen because you have saved us in Jesus. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.